I'm Liam Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bonjour, falcha, and bienvenidos to the Motivated Classroom podcast. I'm really excited here today to have a fantastic teacher, educator in front of me on the screen on the other side of the world who we're going to speak to very, very shortly, the wonderful Abelardo Almazan Vasquez. And I'm very excited to speak to him today. There's been so many times I've reached out and thought about asking him questions and seen things on his Twitter. And so it's an exciting, exciting day. But of course, this is the Motivated Classroom podcast. So we must, of course, start with our little bit of Irish, as we always do. And today it's a phrase that fits very, very well with this episode because I am genuinely really, really happy about getting the chance to speak to Abelardo today. And so that phrase in Irish is to ahas on down urum. And how that translates is ahas means happiness and urum is on me. So what you're saying is there's happiness on me, but the word down in, in Irish means the world. So in Ireland, we say the happiness of the world is upon me to say I'm really ex- excited, I'm really happy. So it's ta'ohas on down urum. The happiness of the world is upon me. So that is how we start off. So hello to you, Abelardo. Como estas? How are you? Is everything going well? Hola, muy buenas tardes a todos, todas y todes, everyone. Thank you so much, Liam, for having me. And it's a pleasure to be in your space. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias a ti. So today what I'm going to speak to Abelardo about really is about unpacking toxic masculinity, what it means to be male, being male, misogyny, all of these topics that sometimes we feel like we don't really want to speak about and we maybe fear and walk away from and say, I'll just leave that over in the corner. But we want to tackle these head on and and we hope that you go along with us. And, and this is something I certainly see in my practice on uh, quite regularly, actually, is, is some of the things that uh, around the constructs of being male and what masculinity means today. So we're going to get into that in a bit of detail with Abelardo. So I'm going to try my best to introduce him. And this is always my, my biggest fear that I get this wrong, but I'll try my best. So Abelardo is in his 12th year teaching Spanish, coaching an all gender soccer team, teaching Latin dances and now world language department head at the Putney School. So he pursued his licenciatura in teaching Spanish as a second language at Universidad Internacional Uninter. I think I've said that right. U-N-I-N-T-E-R. And his master's degree in Latin American studies at Cleveland State University. Native from Cuernavaca, Mexico. Abelardo has presented at various world language conferences, including the Massachusetts Foreign Language Association, the Minnesota Council of Teaching Languages and Culture BIPOC Stand, which is, of course, black, indigenous and people of colour. He was a featured presenter at the Northeast Conference of Teaching Foreign Languages and the keynote speaker at the Greater Washington, D.C. Association for Teachers of Foreign Languages Spring Conference 2021. Abelardo has also been confirmed as the Vermont Foreign Language Association keynote speaker for their annual conference in March 2023. So don't miss that, people of Vermont. And he'll also be presenting a testimonio about machismo and masculinity in the World Language Classroom in the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese Conference, which is in Salamanca, Spain, next June 2023 an impressive and amazing CV. And I would like to say someone who I have just huge respect for what he's doing in our space for teachers all around the world and, and so many great things shared on Twitter. And I've particularly enjoyed this year as you, as you step into that leadership role, sharing some of those I suppose, struggles, successes, problems, issues, everything. And it's, it's just so refreshing and lovely to read. So, so muchas gracias for sharing and for being with us. So 
Today, Abelard, though, I'd like to just briefly start off by asking you about your general philosophy in the language class. You know, I suppose, what type of, of teacher are you and, and what are your main priorities when it comes to the classroom and teaching? First and foremost, I'd like to quote a really good friend of mine in a recent guest of your show, Ben Tinsley, who defined himself as a, as a lifelong learner or someone who is constantly learning, unlearning, or relearning. So I identify a lot with that statement because my teaching philosophy is both being a teacher and a learner. So I feel that it is a, an ongoing opportunity to uh, discover new things that I didn't know about, not only the language and the culture, but discovering and unpacking things about my identity. Who am I? The things that I'm learning every day and how this presents an opportunity to share it with my students so that they see that as a vulnerable journey. So that's how I define myself. In, in teaching these days. Aye, fantastico. Yeah, I think I'm very much similar to you in that space. And actually, since I started this podcast, I, I feel like uh, my learning has expanded so much from the people I've spoken to. And, and I guess I thought that I knew a few things before the podcast, but now having spoken to so many people, it's opened my horizons so much. And, you know, people like Francoise Tenu, um, Margarita, Adriana Ramirez, now speaking to you, speaking to Ben Tinsley, and so many others, they've just really helped me to, to look at things in a different way. And one of those things actually that I think I've changed in my teaching in the last few years is I have become more central and more focused on teaching with a social justice lens. And I know that that's something really important for you as well. So I guess I'd like to ask kind of where did that passion come from and, and why do you think it's so important for us as educators to teach with this social justice lens? Because sadly, I think many teachers feel that's not their role. And they say this to me, they say, oh, you need to keep politics out of teaching and you shouldn't be talking about the climate crisis. You shouldn't be talking about, you know, refugees dying in boats crossing the Mediterranean. Like that's not your role. And I take a massive step back to that and say, I, mean, I personally feel it is my role and, and it's really important for me to do so. But where, where did your passion come from, from that lens and the social justice issues? It came from understanding for the first time back in 2016, 17, when I heard the one and only Kimberly Crenshaw presenting her ideas around intersectionality. The moment that I understood that concept, and I had this person right there in the room with 5,000 people listening to her keynote, it really hit me how important it is to not ignore or underestimate how many of us live at the intersection of language, of race, of ethnicity, of gender identity, of uh, the struggles that are now more or less, but just identifying them and raising awareness how do we create a picture that actively talks about identity and the social justice that comes with it? Because now that you were mentioning about the expression, don't you bring your politics to the mm, classroom? Yeah. My first thought would be Paulo Freire right away. I would say, all teaching is political. People probably mean partisan as a political party, but they're thinking about the Republicans, the Democrats, the Labour Party, the Communist Party. But um, as a political act, I think the idea of neutrality does not apply in our classrooms. We come to the classroom with our biases and 
with our preconceived notions and it is a job of every single adult in the room to work on the things that we may not know that we are actually harming our students we're harming the communities that, that, that we're talking about by stereotyping them by exoticizing them romanticizing them even so I feel understanding the theory of intersectionality was key for me back in 2017 and from there it has been a wonderful journey of learning on learning and relearning. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you and and those points. Yeah, when when people say those things about keeping politics out of the classroom and I, I think you're right, people do conflate and mix up I'm not talking about, you know, voting red or blue or voting this way. I'm I'm talking about humanity and, and being a kind human being that, that stands up for others who are who are nowhere near as lucky or as privileged as we are in the situations that we have. And just the importance of that. And for me, it really is. It's what it all comes down to. It's just so important. I would much prefer that my students know a little bit more about their own identity can be critical and look at their privilege and, and where they come from and ourselves too as opposed to understanding the difference between the preterito and the imperfecto perfectly you know for me there's no comparison there as to, as to the goal you know and and one thing I just like to build on what you said there you, you mentioned when you were talking about the intersectionality and understanding that and sometimes without even realising that we can be creating more harm than good or, or using stereotypes or or maybe using materials that actually create more issues, even though we're trying to do the right thing. How can we, I suppose, navigate that? What's your advice to people around that? What what can we do to try and ensure that we're not creating more problems than, than, than what we currently have? I do. One thing that has worked for me is understanding the idea around positionality. If we exercise the, our position, how we enter any space, not only the classroom, but entering any space and recognizing or acknowledging, for example, in my case, cis-head, male, I am tall, I am able-bodied, I have two passports, I, I, I carry a set of privileges that other people in my classes or colleagues or even friends don't currently possess so making that exercise of analyzing for a minute do i have to worry about choosing which restroom am i i need to go do i need to worry about walking in a dark alley at midnight and without any fear so when i do that exercise of positionality who am i in relationship to the power the privileges the, the dynamics that exist in the community it becomes a good exercise of being vulnerable showcasing yourself as a vulnerable person that you're not always going to get things right by by modeling that vulnerability with your positionality in front in front of the classroom or with colleagues uh that creates a good habit. It creates a habit of understanding that we need to read the room. We need to catch up on the, on the things that are happening with the, our students. The students that we taught last year, this year they're very different. So the teaching practices that we had last year may not be applicable, may not work 
in the same way. So constantly like having that mindset of like a reading the room, acknowledging our positionalities and not being afraid to be vulnerable. I think that the word here that we're going to be using a lot is vulnerable, being vulnerable in those spaces. I, I think it's so, so powerful. And I remember hearing about the term when I was studying to be a teacher, actually, and I don't think I've realized what it fully meant until quite recently was one of our trainers in teaching was, was talking us about reciprocal vulnerability, as in the fact that you as a teacher and, and to a 13, 14, 15 year old kid, you are that position of power in the room and you know more than them at that time. If you show some of that vulnerability, then they will reciprocate and be happy to open up themselves a little bit more. And now we can really get into some of, as you say, that positionality and our own privilege and where we come from. And and I think I definitely recognise that, you know, I, I really wanted to get better at some of this stuff. And I recognise that I'm a I'm a straight, white, male, you know, teaching Spanish that is not my native language in a very nice school in Switzerland and trying to to unpack that a little bit. And, but I wanted to get better at it. And so we, we read with my year 11s, who are my 16 year olds, the, the wonderful book, Port X by Elizabeth Acevedo, a fantastic book. In the book, she describes herself as, as being black, as being curvy, as being female and all the things that go along with that. And yes, when I started reading it, I thought, oh gosh, how is this going to come across from me as a straight white male? How do I even do this? But I just acknowledge that with the students and I have black students in my class. I have curvy female students in my class. And I have to say, I am a white straight male, so I am looking at this from a certain perspective and I understand I'll never understand what you're going through, but I stand. And that that's the really important part. And they you could see it in their eyes going, OK, he's not lecturing. He's saying he's white, he's male, he's straight and he doesn't get what it is to be a woman, but he's at least opening those discussions. And I, I, I feel like that was a sharing a little bit of that power helped. I, obviously, I'm never going to get what it feels like to be a woman, to be a black woman, to be a black gay woman. All of these intersections you spoke about, but opening that conversation. And I guess that leads me on to more of our topic today about this confronting misogyny and sexism in our classrooms. And it does, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit sometimes when you, maybe you've been there, when we feel like we've done a really good job trying to be open and, and, and accepting of others. And then you hear a sexist comment from someone who was in a class, maybe on the, in the corridor or something. And you, it, it's almost like, oh, we've got so much work still to do. And I guess I just like to talk to you about that now. What, what practical advice do you have for language teachers around confronting this misogyny, sexism, that they may hear comments in their classrooms, in the corridors, in the school? What, what kind of advice can you give us as educators? I want to answer that with a acknowledgement that this is going to be probably a work in progress or that it's not always going to be easy to practice this. But my most honest advice is to interrupt anything that is happening in the moment with any sexist comment, with any display of uh, misogyny, with any locker room talk, with any jokes or things that uh, our students or even colleagues may be saying that they're trying to be funny, they're trying to break the ice, they're trying to like uh, fit in. But uh, my instinct 
at 40 years of age because I'm, I'm i'm 40 years old and it took me so many years to come to this moment it's not a an easy journey is to interrupt that i agree and when i say interrupting it it looks in many different ways some people use the term calling out some people use the term calling in however you want to do it do not let it continue that will be my most honest advice and i will tell you why the biggest problem that we're seeing in our society as a mexican national myself as a, someone who immigrated to the united states is that once we get into our teaching positions that once we are getting into a comfort zone we have a job uh, we're able to like uh, function in a society it is very easy for us to say i am not like them it's very easy to say that but the biggest problem is not that it's our silence and complicity when something like that happens in mexico i remember teaching a class about the idea of and i'm translating this both in english and spanish rompe el pacto break the pact because in societies in latin american societies there is this patriarchy pact we can say you and i like no we're not like that we uh we have families or i have a spouse or we have like our daughters and our siblings are, are like uh, children but what are we doing to actively denounce those moments that perpetuate the system where you and i benefit from so i think that will be my uh, way of like uh, interrupting denouncing and pointing that out that, that that we are that we are not there's an expression in spanish that i'm trying to think of the how do i say that but it's hacerse de la vista gorda to turn a blind eye yeah. correct correct so i will i will use that as an example of how easy it is sometimes to teachers who are cis-head male or teachers who benefit from the patriarchy system to turn a blind, a blind eye. They will say like, not my problem. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not like them. But we need to change the mindset that calling that out, interrupting that. And the moment that we do that in front of our students is an act of solidarity. We go from being allies to being accomplices. It's not like we're cheering them from the from the benches, from the bleachers, like yes, uh, women, trans, gay people, LGBTQ too. Like we're cheering from you. No, we need to be side by side with them because the burden that they're carrying, just for the right to exist, just for the right to uh, be in a space where they're not always welcome, where they always have obstacles. We can start using our privilege and our power to dismantle that with key moments, interrupting, saying like, that's not right. I'll give another example of how this happens. I coach soccer or football. Oh, finally, I can say football because we're <laughs> here in the United States. It's a struggle always when, when I do that. So You know, to give you a bit of cultural significance here, what's really interesting about the word football is I say football, of course I do, for the, the game where 11 against 11 on a football pitch. But in Ireland, where I'm from, we have two types of football. We have the football that's played, the world game football, but we also have Gaelic football, Irish football, which is 15 against 15, different game. And so if you say football 
in Ireland, you're actually talking about the Gaelic football. So you almost, it's weird, but you almost have to say, like when you say the word football, you almost have to say which one you're talking about. So it's another cultural layer of the word football. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's okay. So in addition to Spanish, I also coach the, the beautiful sport, the 11 v 11. So we are one of the few schools, few institutions in our region that has an open team. So open team is not co-ed. It's not just like a male, female athletes, but it's open because we are welcoming students in our school who are part of the non-binary, gender non-conforming identities. It's beautiful because we are actively talking about inclusion by opening those spaces that are traditionally male and female. But once we have that, it is hard to tell a boy, 14, 15 year old boy, don't take off your shirt. It's hot or it's raining. And boys, the ones that I have, they're very easy to say like, I'm just going to take my shirt off and I'm going to showcase like, so how do we have that conversation of what it means when a man has the opportunity to like, I'm just going to take my shirt off. You cannot do that in women's sports or you cannot do that in, uh, in the trans LGBTQ uh, non-binary community. Those are sensitive conversations, but we need to interrupt that in the moment by saying, you know what? We can learn new habits. We can have our shirts on. We can have our jerseys on. We don't need to, to do that. We're, we're not in, in a Mediterranean beach resort. We are modeling a new way of uh, behaving. And not, on, not only for calling that out, but we're trying to build new paradigms new ways of seeing ourselves, our positionalities, and how this is affecting the people around us. They're not always comfortable with that. So back to the Spanish classroom. I made the example with soccer. Those are the topics that I will be bringing, like uh, how essential it is to interrupt, call that out, or call in the moments where folks like you and I get benefits and lots of privilege and we don't even have to worry about a system that is harming other members of our community. Yeah, absolutely. So true. And, and you said so many wonderful things there. And I just go back to that idea of interrupting such an important piece. And as you say, it's almost like how we started, you know, when people say that thing of, well, don't get talk politics and it's not your role to talk about these things. But by me saying nothing about some of these big social justice issues, I'm essentially saying, well, I agree with it and I'm okay to let this just roll on. And that's just not okay with me, you know, like across all sorts of social justice issues, whatever that may be, I, I, I want to work in a space and luckily I work in a space where we can speak openly about these things and, and we should do. And I think that really interestingly, when we talk about sexism, misogyny, toxic masculinity, Sometimes there's pushback from male members of either staff or, or the community that, you know, we talk about this enough. We don't need this anymore. You know, we, it's always in our face. You don't need to tell us anymore. We know we have to be good people. But actually, the problem still exists. It's still huge. It's still there. And I saw a really interesting social media post that was on TikTok. And it just asked openly, what would you do if there were no men in the world for 24 hours? That was the question. And the responses were, I'd go for a walk in the park. I would walk my dog at night after 11 o'clock. 
I would laugh with my girlfriends wearing a miniskirt and a, and a small top. I would walk down the street with my high heels on feeling confident. These are normal everyday things that people should be able to do. But all these women were responding on this forum saying, I just want to be able to go for a walk in the park in an evening. I just want to go for a run when it's dark and not worry. So it's important work. Like having these conversations is just too important to not talk about. It's just it's huge for me. It really is. It's it's so huge for me. And and I guess I'd like to to bring that on then to the next question. She would be. This idea of being male or masculinity and what that is, how can we talk about this or how can we reconstruct this idea in our classrooms with our students who identify as male in our classroom? What, what, what can we do there and how do you open those conversations? So I do have a practical advice on this front and it is a topic that it is taboo in many cultures, including Mexican culture the importance of mental health in our group of cishet males. Mental health, it's a topic that should be normalized in most of our settings, whether you have like a group of adults or students. Mental health can be a triggering word to many because I can tell you as an example, uh, in Mexico, we don't talk about going to therapy we don't use that it's like no you have to keep it all together you have to be strong you have to showcase your like a uh, control you got this you're a man man don't cry the reality is that we do of course we are a mess you're a mess right now i am a mess right now <laughs> we we don't we don't we don't keep it together like uh, sometimes we're really good at showcasing a facade in front of others but the reality is that mental health, it's uh, something that I would like to push more into curriculum, into the, the dorm, because I teach in a residential uh, school. And having these conversations in an open and very intentional way. I make this a part of my classes. What it means for someone who is a Spanish-speaking person from Latin America, immigrant in the United States, to find a good therapist, find someone where you can talk to. We, we don't need to work only on our physical aspect or our muscles or building like the strength and stamina, but our like, the, the mental health piece, that will be the entry point that will start questioning what it means for me to be a man. Why do I have to keep it all together? To not cry because if I cry, I'm showing weaknesses. What if my dad finds out and he's embarrassed that I'm crying in front of people? Those are conversations that you cannot really have with your family. You can have that conversation with your students. You can have that conversation with your HR person, your dean of faculty. You're like, uh, you need to find a person. It needs not necessarily something that you need professional help. It's an investment. It's an investment in making a better version of yourself as a human being. So then once you are able to unpack all of this, you can go back to the classroom and say, this is what I've learned about my identity, my positionality, and it changes the tone. 
It really does. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and I think we are, at least in Europe, in, in my setting, we're definitely making strides forward in this. There's a lot more discussion around people who identify as male who are willing to speak more about their mental health and talk openly. It's, it's getting better bit by bit, but we have a long way to go. And actually, that comes back to the vulnerability piece, right? Because if in front of your students, you're open and speaking about some of your struggles and your tensions and that you were a mess crying last night when something happened, you're setting an example that this is the type of masculine that I see and, and this is the, the male I am and this is what it means to be a man for me. And, you know, I'll give you the example of when when my daughter was born, you know, and, and I came back into class. We only get two weeks of paternity leave here. Very patriarchal society, sadly. So we had to come back in the classroom very quickly and you know, I was sharing with my students and, and every time I talked about her, I would just, but I was starting to cry, you know, in front of all of my students and they could see it in me. They could see how much it meant to me. Like I was showing them pictures, talking about her and I was crying, you know, right in front of them. And, and they, you could see that this was a moment they were going, oh, teachers don't cry. Or why is my, my, my Mr. Printer crying? And but trying to say to them that this is OK, you know, like this is emotional. This is me. This is raw. Uh, I don't want to be here right now. I want to be with her. Like, I love you guys. I love my students, but I do not want to be here today. I want to be at home with my daughter. And those type of conversations were were, were very, very powerful, I think. And I hope some of the boys in the class see that as, a, as an example to go, well, this is a different version of, of masculinity. And, you know, I don't think any less of Mr. Printer because he cried. And maybe, maybe they, they think a little bit more of me. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll see if that happens. OK, so ahora, Abelardo, I want to speak a little bit more now about really the classroom piece. And as you talked about that interrupting and not being someone who just bystands but actually to be an active upstander and do what we can and interrupt those conversations but for me personally I identify as as a cisgendered white male and for me I think I maybe find it easier to speak about toxic masculinity being male misogyny because of my positionality and who I am but what advice would you have for those who are listening to this who identify as as female, who are women teachers, who maybe when they hear sexist comments or if they've got some toxic masculinity in their group, in their class, a group of boys that are particularly toxic, how can they get in there? What what way can they interrupt that? And, and what advice would you have for them? The things that I have noticed, the demographics of our profession, where the, the females continue to be a large percentage of the teaching force. The, we're still a minority, but a very powerful and privileged minority, I'd say. With that amount of privilege and uh, the opportunity to act and to model that, my advice for female teachers is to remember that they don't always have to do the education. They have done so much already by simply existing in a space that was or that is not always designed for them. That it's, in my mind, totally okay to ask your department head, to ask your faculty, like uh, your colleagues, for professional development where you are inviting males, male identifying educators, and to make it part of the curriculum that these conversations need to be normalized. They should not be the, the exception. In my mind, in addition to calling that in, calling that out or interrupting when something like that is happening, needs to come with a component of 
restorative justice. Because the restorative justice piece is also the one of the most underrated practices, in my opinion, same as the social emotional learning, like learning how to first go to the person or to the group of people who has received the harm. And then finding a way for collectively healing from moments like that. And having that conversation with the boy, with a cishet boy, that one action, it is not defining of how this person is going to be in the future. So changing the way we talk about actions, not people. We can say to my female colleagues, you're talking about the action, but the boy who commit the microaggression, the boy who mentioned the sexist joke, we still care for that person. We're like actively saying like, we're, it's not about you, the person, but it's about the action. Yeah, absolutely. So that will be my advice. Like how do we use that tone on both calling that out, but calling the action out, not the person. Like for example, the thing that you did was the commentary or that, that sounded racist, mm. but you are not a racist person. Yeah, exactly. So switching that like a narrative makes a huge difference. And the moment that people hear that or the moment that you have the ability to bring your classroom, your community to a moment of reflecting or like, a, what happened here? What did you notice? What do you wonder? What can we do? So then this is uh, something that we are all learning from. It sets a good tone, in my opinion. And I acknowledge like this is not always going to be an easy task to do. Like, uh, for example, in our case, it may be easier because you and I work at a private institutions. But I also have to understand the demographics at the intersections from those colleagues who work at a public school setting, who work at the rural settings, urban settings, class divide, students who are in a certain demographics area where they're majority minority. So, but my first advice would be switching the tone. It's like the action, calling out the action, but the person, we still care for the person. Yeah, I, I love that. That's, that's such great advice and really actionable, practical, meaningful advice when you hear those comments is exactly that, is calling out the sentence, the action, the thing. But as you say, not saying you are a racist, you are sexist, because, yeah, that immediately gets people's backs up because nobody thinks they're racist or sexist or horrible. Nobody thinks that. But so as long as we can call out those actions and those sentences, it's so much more powerful. And yeah, that lovely sentence you use just going, you know, that particular phrase that you use, that sentence that that came across really actually quite sexist. But I know that you would never want to, to be considered a sexist or I know that you're not like that. So how can we unpack those sentences and make sure we don't use those again so they're not perceived in that way? Or yeah, that that's really, really powerful. I love that. One of my pieces of advice that I heard recently on, I think it was on Twitter, I saw this and it was it was posted by a, a woman and she said that her dad had taught her this way to be an upstander. And I, I've tried using this uh, with actually you know, people who I hang out with. And as you say, can it's that breaking that pact. And it worked incredibly well. It was very powerful. And I've given it to my students. In, in our school here, we've got what are called approaches to learning skills. And these are typically academic type skills about, you know, organisation, social collaboration. But we also, we have created as a school 12 intercultural competency 
approaches to learning skills. So essentially 12 skills that we want our students to be able to use, which are like, you know, standing up for injustice and, you know, like looking into bias. These there are 12 skills that we want our students to have to for a more equitable, socially just world, essentially. And, and we're trying to teach them these skills. And one of them is this, this woman who posted this, I think it's very powerful. When you hear a sexist comment or a joke or a racist comment or joke and everyone around you, that little group, they kind of laugh or snigger, there's a little smile and nobody really says anything. To just say at that moment, really seriously, but like honestly, just kind of say to the person, I don't get it. And just ask them, can you explain? And then that person goes, oh yeah, you know, you know, like the way women are always like this. Well, you know, and then everyone laughs again. And then you all, you say another time, you go, no, I, I still don't get it. I don't get, I don't get the joke. Mm-hmm. And when that person has to explain that sentence out loud three or four times and everyone else is kind of a bit quiet, they're suddenly realizing, oh, wow, that, yeah, I, well, I can't really explain why it's funny, you know, and just kind of saying, I don't get it. I don't understand the joke and being really honest. I don't, I don't get it. Can you help me to understand that joke? Cause I don't get it. And I taught my students this and it's very powerful and it's a very easy way for them to be an upstander without that being that person of like, you can't say that, you know, that type of thing. So I feel like that's something that I've used personally in my own life. And it did have a very big impact, actually. I just felt like that's a nice one to share. So I'm going to pass back over to you, Abelardo, for the end piece. And this is often how I finish with my interviewees. It's been so fascinating talking to you. I could literally talk to you all day. So you're now talking to hopefully hundreds, thousands of language teachers all around the world listening to this podcast, mainly teachers, mainly language teachers. What three key takeaways or learnings would you like them to take home from this podcast and jot down in their notebooks and try and put into their practice. What what are the three things you would hope they walk away with and go, I'm going to, these three things are now something I'm going to work on. So the one thing that I'm going to say, the first sentence that comes to my head, it's okay to not be okay. It is totally fine with uh, the idea that we don't have everything figured out. That we're going to, if we find a group of people, colleagues, and if you're a, a cishet man trying to build that community, that affinity space where you have this collective thinking of what is expected from me as a man, what society sees of me as a man, and what can we do differently to change and challenge those narratives. So that will be my uh, first uh, takeaway, the second one, if your school community allows it, and if you have an opportunity, break the bubble of your classroom and try to bring these conversations beyond the spaces where you normally teach. I, in my school, what I do is that I have assemblies, we have uh, convocations, uh, And I do have a section called Frase del Dia, and I bring quotes from an organization that talks about manless and masculinity. It's called Voices of Brotherhood. If people are interested, follow them on Instagram. They sound like quotes or phrases that are meant to be inspirational, but they're aimed to the boys who are not taking Spanish classes with me. I'm looking at them too, and I'm looking at my white male colleagues also who are not always uh, part of the teaching body, who the, the ones who may be admins, the, the ones who may be like adjuncts. 
it's like try to bring these conversations outside of the, of your classroom because it's so easy to think yes i'm doing my job as a classroom teacher how can we transcend those conversations outside of the classroom that will be my second one the third one is finding those educators on your social media on twitter on tiktok on facebook or whatever platform where you can build that community of male educators and create an affinity space when we talk about affinity spaces we oftentimes think about those who are immigrants those who are black indigenous refugees but also it will be great to have like another affinity affinity group of male educators who can get together virtually like uh, in your social media circles and bring those questions in a safe space we cannot do this by ourselves we need to find community we need to build community and i'm hoping that if you if you're listening to this you know that it's a it's a difficult journey it's not always easy to talk about this but we need to start because our silence is being complicit and it's harming our female colleagues and students our trans youth and non-binary students as well so those are my takeaways absolutamente muchísimas gracias that was that was fantastic i really brilliant takeaways for everybody very meaningful that we can really put into practice and and yeah I, I completely and utterly agree with you and and that part you spoke about right at the beginning of saying it's okay to be vulnerable it's okay to get things wrong it's okay to to acknowledge that and say you're not going to get things right but but not trying and not saying anything is is not really an option we we've got to give it a go and if and if we get it wrong we get it wrong you know but let, let's let's try it out so a huge thank you Abelardo muchísimas gracias thank you so much for being here i hope you enjoyed the conversation gracias a ti Liam y gracias a todos todas y todes exactamente and those who are listening to this right now um i'm really hoping that it is the beginning of many, many wonderful, powerful and meaningful conversations. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much. So I wanted to talk directly now to all of you listeners out there. So huge thank you for listening, for being here, for supporting the podcast. And of course, we're coming to the end of another episode. So it must be our Irish phrase for today, which was Ta'ahas on Down Urim, meaning the happiness of the world is upon me. It's a, it's a great sentence to say, I'm really, really happy. Ta'ahas on Down Urim. So please tune back in next week to the Motivated Classroom podcast. Thank you for all of your ongoing support on the Patreon page or the Buy Me a Coffee. Really appreciate it. And as I always say, if you're not in a financial space to do that, that's absolutely fine. It doesn't matter. Just keep listening for free. Keep sharing it with people. That's all I ask. It doesn't matter. It's all good. Thank you so much. With that, Guramila Mahagav, August Slawnawalia. The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter, and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer, The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow the Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.